The scripture reading for this afternoon is coming from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Now Elijah the Tishbet of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here, turn eastward, and hide yourself to the brook Cherub, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did something, did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. The living word for God's people. Uh, my name's Paul Major, and uh, this is a somber time uh, for me to have an opportunity to come before you and bring God's word. But it, it's also a celebratory time as we celebrate uh, the baptism, the, uh, the outward marking of uh, God's covenant with his people, God's remembering his people, God's never abandoning his people. So we sit in a tension here um, And I don't know what to say to this situation specifically. I just, uh, and I won't say much, uh, but I, I do, I just want, I want to read the names of the nine men and women uh, so that we don't just get used to calling them the Charleston Nine or the Emmanuel AME Nine, but we know they had names and God knew their names. Uh, Cynthia Marie Graham Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lee Lance, Depayne Middleton, Clementa C. Pinckney, Myra Thompson, Tawanza Sanders, Daniel Simmons, and Sharonda Singleton. Now, these are just the names of those who the Lord took home. There, there were others in the room who, unfortunately, I don't have their names right now, uh, that are, their names are just as important. Uh, but I, I just, I had that on my heart. But as we continue in our sermon series, entitled Explicit Lyrics of the Faith, Today's sermon will be on the reality of miracles. And while this whole situation was on my mind, it, it, 
doesn't come out expressly in my sermon, but it's definitely served as a backdrop. Um, So let it speak to you as it speaks to me. Um, The reality of miracles in many ways has been the deal breaker for lots of people. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States of America, famously used a razor blade and glue to create a miracle-less version of the Gospels. He cut out all those passages about Jesus that did not upset his intelligent, educated, rational sympathies against miracles, and he glued them to another book, leaving in one hand a mutilated Bible while on the other hand, creating a Frankenstein's monster. Jesus as nothing more than just a wise man who said wise things. A Jesus created in Thomas Jefferson's image. And things like this have been happening to the Bible for hundreds of years. People have tried to explain away miracles in the Bible as either misunderstood or made up. A miracle is, by definition, any event that cannot be explained by natural or scientific means. But this creates a tension between scientific faith or faith in what can be seen, observed, controlled, and proven, and biblical faith. Because the Bible is full of miracles. Water turns to blood. Water turns to wine. Thousands of people are fed on table scraps at least three separate times. The sun stands still. The sun goes backwards. Some people have superhuman strength. Some people have superhuman speed. Languages are confused. Languages are unconfused. Cities are destroyed by heavenly fire or by trumpets. A bush burns but isn't burnt. Bread falls from heaven, water flows from rocks, rivers part, a walking stick grows flowers, a snake talks, a donkey talks, God talks. Diseases are inflicted and diseases are cured, the old has children, a virgin has a child, dead people come back to life. The Bible is full of miracles and we can't just explain them away as myths or misunderstood just because we don't understand them. In 2006, uh, James Cameron, the director of Terminator and Titanic, Aliens and Avatar, arguably uh, one of the greatest directors uh, of our of his time. Uh, James Cameron produced a documentary for the History Channel called The Exodus Decoded. And the whole purpose of this documentary was to explain all the plagues in the book of Exodus as the aftermath of a gigantic volcanic eruption. All those miraculous plagues became nothing more than natural phenomena. It wasn't God who caused the plagues, to prove to Pharaoh that his gods were powerless. It was a volcano, thousands of miles away. 
This documentary is just one example out of many that tries to paint the writers of the Bible as primitive, ignorant, uneducated folk who didn't understand what we understand now. Because if only they understood what we understand now, they wouldn't have to resort to miracles. But I say, if only we knew what they knew, we wouldn't have to resort to explaining it all away. This very act attempts to take God out of the miracle and leaves us with little to have faith in. It also leaves us with a lot of questions unanswered. Questions that aren't there if we just take it at face value. Maybe Jesus didn't really walk on water. Maybe it was just really shallow. But then, how did Peter start to sink? Maybe Jesus didn't really feed 5,000 people. Maybe the compassion of that one little boy to offer up his whole lunch moved everyone else to offer up their lunch. But then, why did the people come looking for him the next day asking for grub? Maybe, the virgin, maybe Mary wasn't really a virgin. But that story was, that was just a story that was made up to explain how different Jesus was. But virgin birth is more believable now in the age of in vitro fertilization than it was 2,000 years ago. In fact, that's what made it so profound. If the virgin birth was just made up, then it's an absurd lie. But if it's true, then we see that Jesus clearly is both God in the flesh and the biological promised son of King David. But while there are obviously plenty of examples of miracles in the life of Jesus, I won't be preaching from any of them specifically, though I will be resorting to them. Uh, I will be bringing them in. The reason being is that Jesus is God, and we're not. The issue with believing in miracles is not whether I can perform miracles but whether God can perform miracles. And so looking at the miracles of Jesus would certainly give us ample evidence of, uh, for believing in miracles. Uh, it wouldn't give us the clearest picture of how we, as recipients of God's miracles, are to understand those miracles and how God uses them. So instead, I turn to the story of Elijah. And admittedly, Elijah himself was a miracle worker, but... We need to con contrast Elijah and Jesus here. Jesus performed miracles because he, as the second person of the Trinity, the creative voice who spoke all things into existence, who made the rules of science and had the authority to make the rules of science and the authority to break the rules of science and nature. Whereas Elijah, on the other hand, he doesn't have the same credentials. Jesus performed miracles by his own power, a power he shared with God the Father, so that people would know him. Elijah performed miracles by God's power so that people would know God. But more than just being used by God to perform miracles, he's also sustained and provided for by God 
by miraculous means. And in addition to this, God also sustained him by providing for him with what we would call normal means. And once these particular miraculous and normal means had run their course, God continued to provide for him through other normal and miraculous means. But Elijah is not an example for us to follow. Uh, this is a trend that in preaching sometimes we're just be Elijah. Uh, we're not called to the same situations as Elijah. We're not provided for in the same ways as Elijah, and we aren't Elijah. Praise the Lord. Instead, let this story serve as a paradigm, a scaffold, a grid, a, a lens or a window through which you look to see how God also provides for us like he provided for Elijah. So my three points are God provides for us through miraculous means. God provides for us through normal means. And God will continue to provide for us through normal and miraculous means. The whole story of Elijah is nothing short of miraculous. He appears out of nowhere foretells the coming of a three-plus-year drought. Here's the voice of God, is fed miraculously, at least three on, on three different occasions. Uh, makes a seemingly endless supply of food like something out of Mary Poppins. Brings a dead kid back to life by laying on top of him. Causes fire to burn up a thoroughly wet sacrifice. Sends fire from heaven to kill people. Outruns a horse. Causes rain. Parts the Jordan River and is taken up to heaven in a flaming chariot. We're not Elijah. For these reasons, Elijah is an ideal, can ideal candidate for a discussion of miracles. Because if miracles aren't real, then there is very little left for us to believe about Elijah being real. And if Elijah wasn't real, then there's no context for us to understand John the Baptist, who was, the who was of the same spirit as the Old Testament prophet. And if John the Baptist's ministry wasn't a continue of Elijah's, uh, then his perception of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world isn't important. And therefore, if you're tracking, Jesus wasn't who he said he was. So this whole notion of the reality of miracles is important. For us to come to terms with. Because we need a miracle. 1 Kings 17 introduces the character of Elijah. And it starts very suddenly. There's no standard introduction. No Elijah, the son of whoever, a prophet of the Lord. No indication we or anybody else were expecting him to just show up. Only the words, now Elijah. In fact, all that we're ever actually told about Elijah's past is that he's a Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead. However, no one knows for sure if Tishba is the name of his hometown or not. Because Tishba can also mean wandering or journeying. So Elijah might come from some unknown town called Tishba, or he might be introduced as Elijah, the wanderer from wandering in Gilead. Elijah the transient. Elijah the highwayman. Elijah the hobo. Elijah the hitchhiker. This is an interesting way to begin the story. This Elijah shows up out of nowhere and somehow gains a presence with the king of Israel. 
Ahab. Ahab wasn't a good king. He was an idol worshiper and a murderer. He all but kicked God out of his kingdom in order to please his wife, the wicked Jezebel, who worshiped the weather god, Baal. So with no small talk, no icebreaker, Elijah gets to business. Ironically, talking about the weather. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah wastes no time throwing down the gauntlet. Basically, he says to Ahab, that little God that you and your wife worship, is a chump. He doesn't control the weather. He doesn't control anything because he isn't real. Yahweh, the Lord, is the only God in Israel. And he's not going to let any rain or dew or anything come for years so that you will know who he is and what he's capable of. Droughts and famines are a big deal when you live in the desert. If there's no rain, then the rivers dry up, and the crops die, and the flocks die, and there's nothing but dust for food. So Elijah makes a serious assault on Ahab's position as king. If you can't provide for your people, what kind of king are you? Go ask Baal for rain and see what happens. And again, with no delay, verse 2 has God speaking to Elijah about what to do next. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself. We can only guess if God meant hide from the drought or hide from that king that you just called out. But in either case, God tells Elijah exactly where to go and what to do. Hide yourself by the brook Cherith, uh, it's probably Cherit, but I had to throw that in there to sound pretentious. With Otherwise, I'm just going to call it Cherith. Uh, hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So here we have God's command for Elijah to, in the words of Biff from Back to the Future, make like a tree and get out of here. But we also have God's promise to provide for Elijah. In the midst of the drought, Elijah will find water. In the midst of the famine, Elijah will find food. But there's more to this picture than we see in our Bibles. God commands ravens to provide him with food. Ravens to feed Elijah. And we need to understand that ravens are nasty animals. They eat roadkill. They eat garbage. They eat each other. No wonder the book of Leviticus calls ravens of any kind unclean. So Elijah's not getting this like all-inclusive catered vacation, but he's being fed off the scraps 
of birds he would otherwise have no uh, contact with. But what about the water? The brook of Cherith. Sounds like a wonderful place, doesn't it? It's a wonderful place to go and get a drink on a summer day. Because when we think of brooks, we think of cool, babbling brooks in the mountains, little rivers, beautiful places. But the word brook here actually means wadi, W-A-D-I. And a wadi is a dry stream bed that only has water in it during the rainy season. And when the droughts come, the rivers dry up and the wadis become sort of mud pools until they too eventually dry, uh, dry up. I grew up at the bottom of two hills. You could call it a valley if you wanted. It wasn't. Um, but I grew up at the bottom of two hills. So every time it rained, all the water would collect in my yard. Sometimes it would take days for that swamp to dry up. And I assure you, that water was far from drinkable. It became muddy and smelly and filled with who knows what. So think of the wadi as the last place for water to go in the desert before it evaporates entirely. This is not an oasis with palm trees. It's a sandy, dirty ditch. But in spite of this lack of curb appeal, we need not diminish the miraculous nature of the ravens and the brook. Look at verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Though, obviously not the most appetizing menu, the Lord indeed provided for Elijah. Just like he said he would. The ravens brought him bread and meat. Mystery meat, but meat, twice a day. The, the, the brook provided him with water to drink. While the drought and famine went on elsewhere, Elijah had enough to get by. For days, maybe even weeks, the text doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us, and the way it says it is remarkable. Verse 6 reads in English, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. But in the Hebrew, the sentence is not in the past tense. It's in the present tense. And the ravens are bringing him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he is drinking from the brook. This use of the present tense is meant for us to see this as an ongoing action. This is not a one-time event, but an ongoing act of God's providence, God's providing for Elijah. We're meant to stop and sit in this verse. We're meant to live in this verse with Elijah. 
Who knows what he did between meals? Prayed, worried, doubted, wish he'd made different life decisions. But in spite of whether, but in spite of whether anxiety or fear or anger or attempts to find food himself, sorry, in spite of whatever anger or fear or uh, anxiety or attempts to find food himself, the text tells us that the ravens are bringing him food in the morning and are bringing him food in the evening, and he is drinking from the brook. Without getting ahead of myself. How can we not be astounded by this? In our own trials and troubles, our own financial and emotional needs, how often we do say, God will provide in the future, or God has provided in the past, or even God provides in the abstract. But how often do we say, God is providing for me right now? Even though I don't know how, even though I can't see it, even though I look around and see nothing, God is providing for me. But we need to move on. God provides by miraculous means. God is providing by miraculous means. But God also provides, is providing by normal means. Normal is an interesting word. I mean, who defines normal? No, no really. I need to know. Um, normal is the setting on the washing machine. What is normal for the spider is chaos for the fly. Therefore, I want to be clear what I mean by normal. That God provides by normal means in no way should be understood as God working in, I'm sorry, as God, in no way be understood as saying that God provides the same things for everyone. Instead, it should be understood as God working in ways where we might not immediately see him working. These are normal means for us, not normal means for God. Really, there's no difference uh, in between God's providing miraculously and God's providing normally because God's providence in itself is miraculous. It's a textbook example because it's something that we can't explain. That I graduated high school is a miracle. <laughs> that I graduated college is even more of a miracle. That I have an amazing wife who puts up with me is a miracle. That I have a job is a miracle. That I've kept my job is a miracle. <laughs> but that I get a paycheck every month? That's just normal, right? This is the attitude we sometimes have. I work hard, sort of. And so when I get paid, I look at it like, well, I do deserve this. But in reality, my paycheck is a miracle 
a small miracle, but a miracle. (laughs) That I have a job that I love or hate or something in between that pays me, which keeps me alive, is nothing short of a miracle of God's providence. So take an inventory of everything you have. Whether it's property and possessions or family and friends or skills and gifts and talents, all of these things have been given by God. And therefore, they are miracles. The reason that I even bring this up and make this as a point in the sermon is because there are many times when we should thank God for performing miracles in our lives that we take for granted. Let's look back at the story of Elijah so far and see all the normal ways God provided in the midst of his miraculous providing. God didn't just pluck Elijah up and take him to some white room in the matrix, but gave him a real geographical place to hide from the drought and or the angry king. Unlike Jesus, who was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days without food and water, who was sustained and kept alive by God and his own godness, Elijah is given material things. He survives the first part of the drought, not because God makes it to where he doesn't need food or water, but because God provides them a place where there is food and water. Man doesn't live by bread alone. But man does need bread to live. And so God provides, no matter how miraculously, the normal things for survival. Ravens, no matter how abnormal a form of food delivery, bring him food. Food doesn't just appear, but it's brought to him. A muddy creek bed that should be long dried up provides Elijah miraculously with water, but the water itself is nothing special. It's just water. God uses normal things to do the miraculous. Sometimes people are healed or brought back to life simply by Jesus' words, but sometimes he spits in their eyes, rubs mud on their face, touches them, or they touch him. But the miracle is no less miraculous just because we can explain some of the things that happened. My dear friend, your assistant pastor, Charles McKnight, is a miracle. I'll just stop there. Everybody just said amen. Uh, Charlotte didn't. Did you know that though? Did you know that he's a miracle? Charles had cancer, but God healed him. Sure, Charles did everything medical science told him to do, he went, he, did, he went through chemo and radiation therapy and took the advice of multiple doctors. But lots of people do these things. They aren't cured. They aren't healed. Chemo and radiation aren't guarantees. They're not perfect. Certainly they're wonderful things put to wonderful use 
I'm not trying to diminish that. But only God can cure cancer. And in Charles's case, God used these things. And I thank God that he did. You want to see another miracle? One that's less explainable? Go and see Paul Hurley. He and his sisters, who are also miracles, but he's my favorite. (laughs) Must be the name. Uh, He and his sisters, Susanna Grace and Sarah Caroline, are triplets. And as is normal with triplets, they were born early and had lots of obstacles to overcome. Paul Hurley is a miracle because medical science can only do so much for someone in his position. Medical science can only do so much for babies like him. Tim, the father, shared with me that at a recent checkup, the doctor turned to the intern and said, this is the best case scenario. Paul Hurley, because of prayer and God's grace is alive today and glorifies God and he's as cute as can be. And there's no way to explain it. We can explain the cute part. But the rest of it is a miracle. But this is not just limited to medical issues. Every one of us has more stories than we can remember of times when God showed up. Rex we survived. Rex we barely avoided. Rex we didn't even know almost happened. Situations when times are tight and we find a check in the mailbox. Situation when times are tight and we have just enough food to get by. Situation when times are tight and someone else came along and helped us out. Miracles happen all around us. We're just sometimes too distracted to see it. But what happens to Elijah? He doesn't just stay by the brook for the rest of his life. Eventually... The things that he has grown comfortable with run out. But God will continue to provide for him. And in the same way, God will continue to provide for us through normal and miraculous means. Look at verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. The drought that Elijah had predicted indeed came true. God kept his word and the lack of rain made the brook dry up. What is Elijah to do? Even if the ravens keep bringing him bread and meat, he can't survive by swallowing his spit, especially in the desert. The well had run dry, so to speak. Uh, This was his stop. And he would have to find some other way to survive or die trying. Though verse 6 with its present tense, ongoing action, hope is where we're supposed to focus our attention. I'm going to be honest. I can't help 
but sometimes feel like I'm living in verse 7 instead. Or even looking forward to verse 7. No good thing can last. This too shall pass. Just give it time. My pessimism and my cynicism cause me to rest beside the brook of Cherith and count the days until the blessing runs out. My Eeyore-ness causes me to constantly grumble that if I haven't already lost my tail, I will soon enough. My hope in the future, and not my wishful thinking hope, but my certain knowledge hope, that God will provide for me as he sees fit is eclipsed by my unshaking desire to know, understand, and control the here and now. I don't trust God the way I should. I just don't believe in miracles. I just don't believe that I'm his child and that he loves me and that he'll do anything to take care of me, that he'll provide for me as he sees fit. And maybe I'm the only one. But I doubt it. We aren't told how Elijah responds as he slurps that last handful of muddy water from that former place of blessing. But despite how our Bibles have these verses separated, the story doesn't end here. Just as God speaks to Elijah, immediately it seems after he confronts Ahab, in verses 8 and 9, Uh, Sorry, verses 8 and 9 have God speaking again. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. God has a plan. In language similar to, and at times identical with, uh, verses 2 through 4, God tells Elijah to get up. Go to this place and stay there. Just as God commanded the ravens to feed Elijah, he also commanded a widow to feed him. Without going into too much detail in that story, it's important for us to know that this widow is not some wealthy heiress, some dowager countess at Downton Abbey but a poor and destitute woman who meets Elijah. She's about to feed herself and her son the last of their food and starve to death. Yet God has a plan. Elijah convinces her to make him pancakes anyway, And then they can eat whatever's left. And miraculously, they don't run out of food for many days, meaning a long time, meaning until the end of the drought. Because God provided. God provides through miraculous means. 
God provides through normal means. And God will continue to provide through normal and miraculous means. Put another way, God has provided for us. God will provide for us. And God is providing for us. And maybe this seems to diminish the power of miracles, putting it this way. Because if everything's a miracle, then nothing's a miracle. If miracles are commonplace in every day, then, they're not, then they can't be spectacular. But, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that miracles are real and are spectacular, but not all miracles are epic reversals of natural law. Not all miracles are the blind gaining sight and the crippled walking. Some miracles, most miracles, in fact, go unnoticed. This is why we need to be careful as Christians when we talk about miracles. Because there, there are ultimately two extremes, and we need to fight hard to stay in the middle of them. On one end, we have the prosperity gospel that takes the promises of heaven and forces them into the here and now. Many times, though certainly not all the time, your faith is called into question if you don't receive the miracles you pray for. But we need, we need to remember that God provides for us as he sees fit and not as we see fit and not as our faith merits. If faith was the basis for how God provided for us, we wouldn't receive anything. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have an unspoken aversion to talking about miracles or praying for miracles. We Presbyterians love to be right. We have tight little categories for everything. And since miracles can't be explained, we tend to leave them out of the discussion. But this too is an error. God may not provide for us and reveal himself to us in the ways, the same ways that he did in the past, but he still speaks to his children and gives to his children every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because we are his in Christ. And this fact is miraculous. God provides miraculously for us. And in this, he's never failed us. God has provided for us by the perfect life, sacrificial death, and miraculous resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, who became sin, though he knew no sin, 
in order to save us. He has provided for us by bringing our dead souls back to life, opening the eyes of our blind hearts, our broken hearts, and making them see him as our only source for comfort in an uncomfortable and broken world. God will provide for us by making all that is sad come untrue and wiping every tear from our eyes as we enter life eternal when his heavenly kingdom comes finally and fully to earth. But God is providing for us miraculously every moment of every day. Sometimes, most times, in ways that we can't see. Sometimes in ways that are obviously apparent. And sometimes in ways that if only we would look around and stop focusing on ourselves, we would see. In fact, faith itself is a miracle. God not only provides us with salvation, he not only breathes life into our dead hearts, but he also gives us, gifts us with a faith that cannot be explained. A faith that we do not find on our own. A faith that we cannot sustain a faith that is miraculous. If you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven miraculously. And if you're still on the fence, still unsure, Still unconvinced? Still believe that it's too good to be true? Then know this. It is. It is too good to be true. It's better than we deserve. It's more amazing than we'll ever understand. It's a miracle. There's no explaining it other than because of God's unfailing love. I'll close, I want to close with this. I have many man crushes. Let's pray. No. Uh, the <laughs> I'm never going to preach again. Uh, there was a man named Polycarp. In the early church, and I mean early church, like just after the New Testament closed, Polycarp was the spiritual son of John the Apostle. And Polycarp served the Lord for 86 years. But because of the world that he lived in, people hated you. Because of what you believed, what you stood for. 
And Polycarp was 86 years old whenever he was arrested and brought before the people of Rome. I guess Rome. Anyway. Uh, and they were going to set him on fire, just like they did with all Christians. But the guy in charge said, listen, you're 86 years old. I'll let it slide. I'll let you go die a peaceful, natural death. Just deny this God of yours. Just say you don't believe in him, old man. And we won't set you on fire. To which Polycarp says, 86 years I've known the Lord, and he has not failed me once. I invite you. Jesus invites you to come to him and be miraculously loved, and he will not fail you once. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your love for us, which never fails us, which even though we don't understand, even though we can't explain, especially because we can't explain it, keeps us and sustains us and provides for us even when times seem impossible. I thank you for this miracle and for the miracle of your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.